Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning and for the encouragement that we find in gathering together as believers in Christ. Thank you for musical worship that we can enjoy and participate in and be reminded of your greatness. And Lord, we are very thankful that in your perfect wisdom you designed the Christian life not to be lived alone, where we can gather together and we can find encouragement and We can be exhorted when we need to be exhorted. We can learn from each other. We can benefit from one another's giftedness. It all points to your wisdom. It points to your love. And we are thankful for these unique and special times when we gather like this. And now, Lord, we would ask, and I certainly would ask, that you would help me to be clear in teaching your word. And, Lord, also we would ask that your Holy Spirit would accompany us that He would open our eyes so that we would comprehend spiritual truth. And not only that, we would ask that Your Holy Spirit would, would drive the truth home so that we might live lives that are honoring to Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, I would like you to turn to Romans chapter 8 this morning where we are going to find some great encouragement. We're studying through Romans right now and we are in Romans 8. So please find Romans 8. If you're new to the Bible, just... Look at the page number in the bulletin, and you should be able to look at Romans 8 and that Bible that we gave you this morning. First hour is kind of lively with all kinds of sights and sounds and everything. I see the sun is out now, so uh, I can't see the sun is out, but I did before they closed the doors, and uh, hopefully we'll have everything calm in here during this hour. Well, I'm not telling you anything you don't know when I say that amidst all of the happiness, amidst all of the fun... And the enjoyment, life is filled with hardship and life is filled with suffering. And some of you know that better than others. We watch watch loved ones ruin their lives with sin. Sometimes it's children, sometimes it's spouses, sometimes it's even parents. People lose their job. Some of you have lost your job recently. On a more serious note, we see people who are abused. We have parents die, grandparents die, we lose children, and the list goes on and on and on. Life is hard, and then you die, as the saying goes. It's reality. If you don't know that that's reality, you will know. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, but... We live in a broken world and life is hard for everyone who lives in this broken world. And then, it's extraordinarily difficult for Christians. Because not only do we face all of the challenges and hardships of living in a broken world, as Christians, we have extraordinary challenges because we fight sin. We fight our own sin. We're no longer in bondage to sin, but now we hate sin and we want to fight against sin. And so that's hard. And not only that, now as Christians, we have extraordinary hardships. Some of you are married to unbelievers and you have that unique and special challenge in your life that creates hardship and suffering. Not only that, we're promised in the Bible that because we are followers of Christ, we will face suffering as a result of that. We will face persecution. So it's extraordinarily difficult for us. Listen to this. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I doubt that's in that little, you know, Bible promise book. (laughs) But uh, it might be. It should be because that's a Bible promise. Or how about Jesus when he said, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Or when Jesus said in Luke fourteen twenty seven, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Or how about even one that doesn't seem to be related to suffering, but it is. How about Jesus in John fourteen six saying, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Try just saying that in a pluralistic world. And all of a sudden, you're like the worst person on the planet. And everybody's against you. Not too uplifting so far, I know. (laughs) Just trying to remind you and and rehearse before you the fact that 
life is really hard in general, and life is even harder for us as Christians. And then in Romans chapter 8, last week, if you look at verse 17, we were reminded of this yet again, where in the midst of good news, great things, verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, and it's so encouraging and so good, and then he gives this caveat, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. You know, and you kind of feel like the fingernails went down the chalkboard and you're like, wait, what? I really like Romans 8.1. You know, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And now it goes on to explain how because of what Christ has done, because God has sent His Son to live and die and rise for us, no condemnation. It's so awesome and it's encouraging and it gives us assurance before God. And then we had to have verse 17. And the promise of suffering. What is that doing in this chapter? What what is it doing in this chapter that's supposed to provide encouragement? That's how I think. I don't know about you. He's just being honest. It's just reality. And if you're really a Christian, you'll begin to resemble Christ and if you resemble Christ people are going to treat you the way they treated Christ and that's part of what it means to be a Christian but there's something in me that wants to say well where's the assurance in that you know okay I was really assured and then verse 17 came and I'm not so assured I'm not so encouraged God I need some more encouragement and that's what he gives us in this next section in Romans 8 we get a lot of encouragement And we need it because we are promised suffering. If you are a Christian, you're not only going to suffer because you live in a broken world, you are going to suffer because you are a Christian. So today we're going to be encouraged. And we're going to begin looking at 8.18 to 8.30. It's a section that goes together, 8.18 to 8.30. And in that section, we'll be able to highlight a number of sources of encouragement. Let's call them six sure sources of encouragement. We'll be able to highlight, identify six sure sources of encouragement for Christians who've been promised suffering. Six sure sources of encouragement. For you if you're a Christian, because for you as a Christian, you've been promised that you're going to suffer. And what we'll do this morning is we'll look at the first two. And I'd like to limit it just to one word to try to keep it really simple. The goal of the day and the goal of the days ahead would be to be encouraged, to be greatly encouraged, even though you're promised suffering in this world. And let's begin with this first sure source of encouragement, limiting it to one word. The word is glory. So if you're taking notes, write down the word glory, and then I'll explain it, and we'll look at verse 18 together. More specifically, glory is the one word, but the idea is our future coming glory. Our future coming perfection. The day when we see Christ and we'll be made like Him. The Apostle Paul wants to remind us of that day. So when things are tough, you've got your mind centered and anchored and focused upon what is to come. And what is to come if you're a Christian is glory. Look with me, if you would, at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, which is connected to verse 17, where we heard about it. Notice he's not saying it's not real. He's not saying death isn't real. He's not saying suffering isn't real. He's not denying the reality of any of it. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Simple, right? Simple point of comparison. When, when you think about what you're going through now, and he's not discounting severity, but when you think about what you're going through now, and you think about the glory that is to come, it's not even worth wasting your breath trying to make comparisons. There is no comparison. It's going to be that good and that significant. It's immeasurably better. The glory is. What does glory mean? Glory has to do with that which is of substance, that which is, which is great and grand. 
He's using it as a a synonym, really, for heaven, for ultimate fulfillment of all the promises that have been made to you in Christ. In fact, we even use this in in our English vernacular when we say things like the glory days. We're talking about the good old days. We're talking about the best days. Well, that's not a a bad idea because the, the idea is we're looking forward to the best day, and that is the day when we see Christ and we're made like Christ. We're looking forward to the glory day, the perfection day. And he's wanting to remind us of that day as we want to get discouraged and we want to be having a bad attitude because of all the difficulties. And he says, you know what? It, it, it's, they, they don't even compare. And I really like it that God in His perfect plan and providence chose the Apostle Paul to write about this. Because that way I can be encouraged by someone who knows what he's talking about. You can be encouraged too. You don't need to turn me off and say, what does that guy know about suffering? He hasn't been through what I've been through. Well, that might be true. But the Apostle Paul actually had suffered a fair amount to the point where he's got a pretty good suffering resume. And so when he's writing under inspiration here saying, i got to tell you something. It's not even a comparison. I'm making a comparison, but it's not even a comparison. It's not even worth it. But apparently it's worth something. Turn with me, if you would, just to get an idea of what he had been through. And that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, which is two books to the right. Turn from Romans to 1 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians. And in chapter 6 and chapter 11, we learn about all the things that he went through. So he knew what it meant to suffer. He knows what he's talking about. It's just not pie in the sky. You know, sometimes we think, oh yeah, the Apostle Paul, the guy with all the churches named after him. What does he know about suffering? Well, um, a lot. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4. And I'm just going to pick and choose some sections of here in this section. Chapter 6, verse 4, he talks about great endurance. That means you're going through difficulty. In afflictions, hardships, calamities, verse 5. Beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, verse 8. Dishonor, slander, treated as impostors, verse 9. As unknown, as dying, as punished, verse 10, as sorrowful, as poor, as having nothing. And then if you turn to chapter 11, you see that there's even more. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 23. Why don't you go ahead and go there just to get an idea of of all that he had gone through. Verse 23, are they they servants of Christ? He's defending his apostleship, these people who, who were supposed to be superior apostles and they had everything and that was supposed to be proof that they were godly and he wasn't. And he's defending himself using some sarcasm. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors. Here's what makes me better, all of my sufferings. For more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Verse 26, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Verse 27, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Verse 28, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And you're out of breath. And you're thinking, man, the guy needs counseling. (laughs) No, he doesn't. Great suffering. I know what it means to go through great suffering. In fact, it's actually a sign of my apostleship that I actually do belong to Christ. This is actually supporting Romans 8.17. It is actually the real deal. But for our purposes, when he says what he says in Romans 8.18, we don't write him off as someone who doesn't know what he's talking about. The other side is, still in 2 Corinthians, he knows what he's talking about when it comes to the glory that is to be revealed. Because actually, he, in a limited sense, experienced it even before he wrote this. We see something of this in 2 Corinthians. It's it's pretty interesting. Turn to chapter 12. 
So he understood the suffering side of things so he can encourage us and say it doesn't compare. And you say, but how could he know? Well, actually, he could know because actually he had a foretaste of it. We learn about it in chapter 12. Look at chapter 12. Verse 2, I know a man in Christ. Based upon what he's going to say, he seems to be talking about himself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, which is what we refer to when we refer to heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but not on my own behalf. I will not boast except for of my weakness. And he goes on to talk about a thorn in the side and things he would do not to exalt himself because he saw this. All of that to say, he knows what he's talking about. So don't believe me because you think I'm some punk who hasn't gone through hard times. Maybe you're right. But believe what the Bible says because the Apostle Paul knew what he was talking about. And whether or not you need to be encouraged today or not, you'll need it tomorrow or the next day or the next day because we live in a broken world And not only that, as Christians, we're promised suffering because of our relationship with Christ, even though there's no condemnation anymore. We need some encouragement. The Apostle Paul says the first point of encouragement is the coming glory. And it's going to be so good, I can't even draw a comparison. As if to say, if I tried to, it it would fall grossly inept. You, you might know what it's like when you try to explain something that you think is magnificent and wonderful and you explain it to someone who has little or no point of reference and, and they, they totally miss it. And you eventually go, yeah, 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 just because they're not going to get it. You know, this is like me trying to explain to you the texture and, and, and the, the great taste that is on your taste buds when you eat a great piece of sashimi-grade tuna. You know? And you say to me, yeah, I like Starkist. <laughs> I'm going, you don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't get it. I remember years ago taking a group of students to Chicago, and this is before we had the Cheesecake Factory here, and now it's old hat and we don't care. But before we had one, we're going to go to the Cheesecake Factory, and it's, going to, it's, it's awesome, you know, the food is so good, and we're going to go, and, you know, and some of the students are like, well, I don't really like cheesecake anyway, so you know, I'm going to Burger King. I'm like, you don't, you don't get it. You don't understand Burger King. I mean, you know, you're going to tell somebody and you're going to describe a filet to them, you know. You're going to get at some great restaurant and this amazing, you know, $35 piece of meat costs extra for the potato kind of thing. And you're going to explain to them they've never had, it, had one before. And they say, you know what? Yeah, I like a BK broiler too. You know, you're going, no, 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 you don't get it. Well, I'm trying to draw comparisons and the Apostle Paul doesn't even do it. He's like, you know what? If I even tried to compare it, it'd be like wasting my breath. There is no comparison. I mean, at least sashimi-grade tuna and Starkist tuna actually are tuna, I think. I don't know. <laughs> He's saying, no, I, I, I can't even do it. Now, here's a question I have for you. What do you know about the glory that is to come that would cause you to think it's so great? You need to know something about it. This is designed to encourage you in the midst of your suffering. So far, you at least have the verse. Okay, my suffering that I'm going through isn't even comparable to how great the glory is. Well, that's a great start. But I don't think that's going to give you that much encouragement in your hospital bed. I don't think that's going to give you that much encouragement when you get that phone call late at night that you don't ever want to get. What's the glory? Let me, let me at least help you with getting your list started. Okay? We should think about heaven. We should set our minds on things above. We should know something about heaven because it's going to be a key to us actually getting through the difficult times. So if you're going to define the glory, sure, it's when, you, uh, it's when everything is good. We could say that and we can have some idea of what heaven is like. But l- let me just give you some, 
some bullet points, if you will. Okay, a starter list, by no means complete. The glory that is to be revealed will mean no more bad circumstances. We can make it positive. Only good things happen. I can't even get my mind around that. It's no wonder he says there's no point of comparison. Because even my, my very best day is not without any bad circumstance. Listen to what Revelation 21 says in verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. And here's why. For the former things, circumstances, have passed away. Not only is there going to, to be no more pain, no more mourning, no more, su- no, no, more, no more tears, there's a reason for that. It's not because everyone now is in a perpetual state of denial of circumstances. The former things are gone. And so you're not in denial of anything. You're actually fully realizing everything. And you know what? Everything is good to the point where I don't cry and I don't mourn and I have no pain because everything is good. So when you start thinking about what the glory is going to entail, it's going to entail only good circumstances. I've got to tell you, I've had a really good day today. You know, started with some espresso, made it at home, you know, had a little protein powder that wasn't so good, and, uh, you know, went over my notes and got ready and everything, you know. But I've still been living in a fallen world, fallen attitude, as saved as I might be, interacting with people I love who are fallen, and who knows what the rest of the day holds, not to mention tomorrow. And it only seems to get worse. So I like knowing this. There's a day coming where circumstances will only be good. How about another thing for your list before we move on? I've got a list of three at least to get you started. You won't sin anymore. You won't even struggle with sin anymore. And I don't know what that's like. It's no wonder he says, I can't even compare what it's going to be like, you know? I love it that I'm no longer under condemnation from God, Romans 8, 1, and I'm beginning to understand some of what that means, and I'm pretty thrilled to not be under the judgment of God anymore. But to, to actually not have any sin, I, I, don't, I don't know what that's like. But it's true in glory. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, you know it probably if you've been here more than about a week. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. We know that when He appears, Christ does, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. You'll see Christ, and you'll be like Him. It doesn't mean you'll become the second person of the Trinity. That's impossible. There's only one eternal God who's always been God. You'll be like Christ to the degree that you can be like Him as a mere mortal, which means you will be without sin. You won't struggle anymore. So when he says, you know what? I know you're suffering now, but it doesn't even compare. Think about the glory, Pat. I'm thinking about being sinless. And then one more thing for your list, and then we'll move on. It's the best. It should be number one on the list. The glory will not only mean only good circumstances, no more struggling with sin. Most importantly... The glory will mean for you and for me, Christ. We'll be with Him. God. That'll be the best part too, by the way. If you don't think it is, you will. Or you won't be in heaven. You'll be with Him. You'll be there with Him. As a worshiper, not under his judgment. That's, that's, that's the best part. I, I love 1 Thessalonians 4. I hate what we've done to it. But 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So the believers are now coming together. But listen to what he says. And so we will always be with the Lord. 
And then in verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. What's the, the ultimate source of encouragement? It's we'll be with him. Can you imagine? We'll actually be with him. What is this? This is amazing. To the point where this is what's supposed to encourage us. And what do we do? We fight about who can draw the better chart about the first part. And we miss the whole point. The great thing about the chapter, the great thing about the verses is he's going to return. But you know what? We're going to be with him. And so when you think about Romans 8, 18, I think the only way you're really going to say, wow, that's really something, is if you've at least started scratching the surface and began to understand, what does that mean? And now amidst the difficulty, no matter how big it is, I can begin meditating and thinking upon the fact that one day things will be right, one day I will be right, and one day I will be with Christ. I'm encouraged. It doesn't take my sufferings away. Paul is not in denial in chapter 8, verse 18. But he's saying, let me tell you about something that's so cosmically better that I can't even draw a contrast. Isn't that good? It's just very, very good. What God has promised and secured by the work of Christ is beyond comparison to what we go through now. Let's move on to the second. That one should have been like two seconds long because... He says it's not even worth comparing. So, that was the short point. (laughs) There's another source of encouragement. Another sure source of encouragement for Christians who've been promised suffering. In one word, it's the word creation. Creation. More specifically, the testimony of creation. This is not one I would have ever thought of. More than likely, some of you are going to join me in this. You know, in the midst of suffering, just in a broken world, and because you're a Christian, you know, what encourages you? Well, you've heard it before. You know, think about heaven and how great that's going to be. Okay, I heard of that. You know, probably could do better, but that makes sense to me. But one that would not be on my list. Think about the testimony of creation. What? How does creation, looking at, let's say, he's talking about the non-human aspect of creation, how does it encourage me in the midst of my suffering? How does it encourage you? Well, I hope you're going to be able to answer that because I hope you're going to be encouraged by the fact that when you see things in creation happening from now on, you say, this makes me think about the greatness of heaven. Let's go ahead and start looking. Look at verse 19. This is going to be fun. For the creation waits with eager longing. Let Let me read that interpretively. For the creation waits with eager longing. Right? There's, it's desiring something. It's looking forward to something. It's reaching for something you can hardly grasp. For the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is longing for something. What is creation longing for? It's longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Well, it sounds like it's important. What is the revealing of the sons of God? He is no doubt just using that statement, the revealing of the sons of God, as a synonym for what he mentioned in verse 18 before, which is the glory okay, that is to be revealed. The glory, your coming perfection as a Christian. The revealing of the sons of God. It's talking about that the ultimate unveiling of you experiencing all of the great promises that have been made to you in Christ. It's talking about your salvation being fully realized, if you will. Because remember, and this happens a lot in the Bible, we'll talk more about it next time, but remember back in chapter 8, verse 14, we learned about being sons of God. In chapter 8, verse 15, we learned about being sons of God. And last time we we talked about that, how all Christians, men, women, boys, girls, we're all sons of God. The idea is we're heirs. 
the idea is that we're in the best privileged position? Well, he's already said that's who we are. But now he's saying creation is looking forward to that day where there is the revealing of the sons of God. That is to say, as we'll see, the day when Christ returns, we see Christ, we're made like Him, and our salvation then enters into, if you will, its fullness. You know, the Bible talks about, sometimes we'll see this next time, but how, how you have been saved, you are saved, and you are being saved. There's this reality that right now I'm a citizen of heaven, but I'm not there yet. Sometimes theologians call it already, not yet. There's a sense that I am saved. There's a sense that I will be saved. There's a sense in which I am a son of God now because of the work of Christ, but there's also a sense that, that I will be revealed in all, in, in all of its fullness, in the fullest sense of it as a son of God in the days ahead where I don't sin anymore, I don't struggle anymore, I have a glorified body. Well, that's what he's talking about here. The creation is longing for that day. It's eagerly longing for that day for the revealing of the sons of God. It's waiting for the day when, when Pat sees Christ and is made like Christ. It's waiting for that day when you, if you're a Christian, see Christ and you're made like Christ. Creation is waiting for that day. Why? Why would creation give a hoot? Why would God's created order care about you and, and, and about me actually being glorified and entering into the fullness of our salvation, fully realizing our salvation? Verse 20 answers it. For the creation was subjected to futility or vanity or aimlessness or frustration, as the NIV says, not willing, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. You could stop there for a moment. The reason the creation is waiting, longing, anxious for that day when we are fully redeemed or fully realizing our redemption, he explains why. And he's talking about the curse. Is he not in verse 20? That's Genesis 3 talk. Genesis 3, 16, 17, 18, 19. Adam led the human race into sin. And what happened as a result? Not only did he face consequences, and Eve faced consequences, and everyone who would come after them faced consequences. We learned about that in Romans 5. But the created order faced consequences. God cursed the ground. God, God pronounced a curse upon the whole created order. Genesis 3, and that's the verbiage that's being used here in verse 20. Creation is, is, is struggling now, subjected to futility. It's in a state of brokenness. And it's waiting for the day where it's restored. And we're going to see when it's restored. Creation will be restored when the human race is restored. When you enter into the fullness of salvation, when redemption is fully realized, guess what? Creation's going to get fixed. He talks about this more. Look at verse 20 where he goes on to say, in hope at the end, and then it should go with verse 21, I think, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See the link together? Our glory, creation knows, will bring about its glory. Creation itself knows history quite well. Adam led the human race into sin and that led to the curse upon the earth. Well, guess what? The second Adam, Christ, is leading in redemption and yet our redemption hasn't become fully realized yet. We still are in these sinful uh, states that we're in. We're waiting to see Christ to be made like Him. But when that happens, creation knows. Creation is longing for that day because creation knows it's going to be repaired. It's going to be transformed. It's going to be fixed. And all of this is in the context of Christians like you and like me being encouraged amid suffering. How does that work? It works like this. When you turn on the news or read it online or whatever you do and you hear about all the bad things that happen in the created order, you should be thinking to yourself, the creation and I have something in common. We're struggling. We are struggling right now. 
But God tells me, you know, he's using this personification, this, this figurative language, that that creation is waiting. And it's waiting to be fixed. And creation knows that it's going to be fixed when I enter into the fullness of my salvation, when I see Christ and am made like him. That's to encourage us. So literally, when you hear about the calamity, you hear about the tsunami, you hear about the drought, you hear about the famine, you hear about the earthquake, you hear about all these things that happen in a broken world. It calls for different responses from us as Christians, but one response that it should call for is some encouragement. Not in a twisted sense. It doesn't mean you don't go and help and you're like, yeah, <laughs> But as you struggle because of suffering and difficulty, you've got to know that you actually have a source of fellowship, not just with other people, not just with other Christians, but you in one sense are like the created order, waiting, longing for restoration that will come. I never would have found encouragement from this if this weren't spelled out for me in Romans chapter 8. In verse 22, it says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You know, with, with every fire and with every earthquake and all these things, not to mention the whole food chain thing. You know, every time somebody shoots Bambi, Bambi doesn't like that. <laughs> you know? Every time I eat veal parmesan and it says, no, Pat, don't eat me. You know? <laughs> when is this going to end? Now being more serious, there's actually something to that. When is death going to stop? When is calamity going to stop? When is suffering going to stop, even for the created, non-human realm? When Christ returns and glorifies believers, in conjunction with that, even creation knows that's when creation is restored. And there won't be any more of that. Listen to Isaiah the prophet who writes about the second coming of Christ. Isaiah 11, verse 6, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Seriously? No more suffering. No more death. Not just for you and for me, but even for the creation. Hmm. Everything is going to be as it was designed to be, not in its current state of aimlessness, chaos, even to use the word that some translators use, vanity, pointlessness. God's going to bring it all back to do what He originally designed it to do before human beings led it into sin and brought about the curse because then through Christ, who in the Bible is called the second Adam, leads in righteousness and brings about redemption for believers and then... The redemption of the world. And so we should find encouragement even from the difficulties we see in creation because we know that they're longing for something just like we're longing for something. I find it interesting, and I think you might as well, in verse 22 at the end, where it describes it as in the pains of childbirth. Having a baby is painful. 
I'm told, <laughs> not speaking from firsthand experience. And then there's severe pain sometimes, but there's a certain joy involved because the pains of childbirth, there's, there's newness coming, there's new life coming, so there's a certain joy wrapped up in the whole thing, and the creation is groaning. Yes, there's pain involved, but it's groaning with, with pains of childbirth because actually there's going to be restoration. And please don't miss this in this entire section. Please don't miss the fact that the connection is made when it comes to creation longing for something. The connection is made that it's longing for the day when believers will be glorified. And how does that happen in light of Romans chapter 8? That happens because of the work of Christ. Everything in Romans 8, everything in Romans points toward our ultimately being glorified because of what Christ has done. Creation knows it's going to be repaired and restored when believers enter into the fullness of what Christ has done for them. Point being this. Creation understands and glorifies Christ. Not like you do. Not like I do. But if creation is looking forward to your glorification, well, that's not happening apart from Christ. It's looking forward to restoration, ultimately restoration by the second Adam. It is Christocentric. Even the created broken world, which is cool to see. Okay. I want to draw out a few implications, but they're going to be somewhat unrelated. So, I'm going to end the sermon now. We're going to move on in the days ahead, and we're going to see that not only should we be encouraged because of coming glory, and it's going to be better than anything we're going through, we should be encouraged because even the creation shares our groaning and is looking forward to redemption. We're going to see in the days ahead that there's something in us that is groaning and longing for this, and we share that fellowship with creation. We're going to look ahead and see amidst this difficult fallen world, and we don't always know what to do. Well, God says the Holy Spirit prays for you. And if he's praying for you as the sovereign, all-knowing God, you're being prayed for. And not only that, he's going to go on to talk about other great things like providence and how providence works especially for believers. Romans 8.28, God causes, even in a broken, fallen world where you're discouraged, be encouraged because God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who have been called according to his purposes. And not only that, you need to be encouraged because even though you know you're no longer under God's condemnation, but life is filled with suffering and difficulty and tragedy and turmoil, then he goes on to talk at the end of that section. And they'll talk about how we've been glorified. We're waiting to be glorified, but he says you have been glorified because it's as good as done. Romans 8, 29 and 30. And that's linked to things as great and wonderful and praiseworthy as predestination. Never meant to be controversial in this passage. Meant to give believers like you and me comfort and encouragement that it is going to work out for our good amidst the suffering where it doesn't look like it's going to work out for our good. And that's the kind of stuff we're going to see in the days ahead in our list of six. So be encouraged. Glory is better, and it's coming. Secured by Christ. Just peek ahead at Romans 8, 29 and 30. And be encouraged that creation is in fellowship with you. Waiting, 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 waiting. You're not alone. Other believers are with you. Creation is with you. End of sermon. Three implications that have to do with your worldview, as if these other things didn't. <laughs> Implication number one. Maybe this could be a whole series in and of itself, but it just is too obvious and too relevant. We need to cover this. Implication number one. Redemption is central to God's purpose in this world. Redemption, the work of Christ, is central to God's work in this world. That is clear in Romans chapter 8. And what's interesting about Romans 8, Romans 8 is talking about all of creation. Out of everything that God has done, everything that God has made, Romans 8 goes out of its way to highlight the most important thing, central to everything else, and it's what he did in his son. Redemption. Redemption is central. 
primary. Read Romans 8, 1 and following, and we see this. This is supported in Genesis as well, not to mention the rest of Scripture. Let's build upon that, and I know you're probably saying that's pretty obvious, but I want you to take that truth outside of the church building, and then you think through the world, and you think through the created order, and you think through calamity and disaster and joy and happiness, and you think through everything, central to everything, redemption. Building upon that, a second implication of this passage, Christ is central to God's purpose in this world. Christ is central to God's purpose in this world. Some overlap here, I know, but it's worth stating the obvious, I think. Even creation itself knows this. We as Christians might say Christ is centered. We've got to be Christ-centered. Yeah, that's true. Good job. But you know what? Even creation knows that more important than anything else, priority number one is Christ. Christ is cent- central to everything. Even creation knows that. Because creation knows that the day you enter into the fullness of your redemption, which is done by Christ... It will be repaired. What's its ultimate source of freedom? It's ultimately traced back to Christ. It's really cool to see that. With that in mind, before we get to the last one, which is related, think about what we learned in Romans 1, way back when. As unbelievers, we worshipped and served the creature. The, the creature. New word. The creature. The creation. Rather than the creator. And it just showed how perverted we were. Well, Romans 8 is weighing in on that too. Just to further see how perverse we were, the creation itself knows that it's not to be worshipped. The creation itself is waiting for our redemption. The creation itself, obviously, then it connects it to Christ. It is so utterly confused and backward and sinful to focus on the creation. Because the creation doesn't focus on the creation. Even notice in our passage, the whole creation groans. What is it groaning for? It's not groaning for, you know, p- p- you know please somehow would you, would you, would you uh, make everything better for us. The creation is, groan, is groaning for our redemption so that it can be fixed. The solution to our earthly problems ultimately is not ecological. The solution to our earthly problems is Christological. And even creation knows it. The groaning that we hear in this passage is not the creation saying, please, you know, work hard so there's a smaller carbon footprint. It's waiting for redemption of human beings because tied to that is its redemption. Now, maybe it would be a good idea to have a smaller carbon footprint. If you want to do that for a profession and you want to be an ecologist, you know what? Please don't misunderstand. You could do that and do that to the glory of God. And we have done irresponsible things as stewards because, remember, we're to rule over this earth. Go back to Genesis. We actually do have a responsibility. Go for it. I would be all for it be admirable to do that provided you understand that you're functioning as a steward in the meantime and you are not going to save the planet and you are not the key to saving the planet the key to saving the planet actually has already been dealt with It's the redeeming work of Christ which secures our redemption 
which then, therefore, timing-wise, will bring about the redemption of the whole world. And so be an ecologist to the glory of God. But just know that the world's problems, the earth's problems, ultimately have already been solved. And you're just trying to help the human race be better stewards in the meantime, which is a good, admirable Christian thing to do. And finally, related to this, number three, third implication, and I've already basically unraveled it or, or unveiled it, but just, just so we're clear, the human race is central to God's purpose in this world. The human race is central to God's purpose in this world. This is true back in Genesis, but it's certainly made clear again here in Romans chapter 8. His focus is on redeeming lost humanity uniquely. And then tied to that, in the wake of that, fixing the earth and the planet and everything after that. But there's a unique place for human beings who have been made in the image of God. Christ came here as one of us to redeem us. And so, again, let's be good stewards with animals. But let's understand God's priorities and how He works so that we have a biblical worldview that we don't end up turning on its head and wasting our time. And how about this? Ultimately insulting God because we haven't been clear with what He's already planned to do and with what He's already secured in the work of His Son. I love this passage because, and I love these implications, because it just magnifies and drives us back once again to that which is central to everything, and that is the redeeming work of Christ. Save the planet. I'm all for it. Put the bumper sticker on my car. Actually, don't. You know what? If you're speaking in already not yet theological terms, I'm all for it. But maybe on the other bumper it needs to say, the planet has been saved. Just waiting for the full realization of what's already happened. And what's the key? It's Christ. The solution is ultimately not ecological. The solution ultimately is Christological. It's pretty cool when you stop to think about that. Pray with me if you would. Father.